guys and gals, we are just three weeks away from the start of the Tour de France. And as always, we here at Velo News have our annual Tour de France guide to keep you updated on all the storylines, the contenders, the stages, the climbs, everything you need to know about this year's race. This year's Tour de France is the highest altitude Tour de France in history. I believe there are six stages that have climbs over 2,000 meters in elevation, which, you know, when we're talking about the French Alps and the Pyrenees, that's pretty high. We have summit finishes at the Col de Tourmalet. We have stages that take in the Col de Isouard, the Galibier, the Col de Lizaran, some of these big climbs. And we spent a lot of attention on these climbs in this year's Villeneuve's Tour de France guide with detailed maps, detailed profiles of some of these climbs that are going to give you the expert analysis that you need to be the, uh, the just the smartest rider on your lo- local group ride. So again, it's the Velo News Tour de France guide available now. Get your copy at www.velopress.com and get educated on the 2019 Tour de France. Uh, welcome back to the Villa News podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here at the Villa News headquarters. And, you know, every now and again, we see just like a like a week in the world of pro cycling that throws the, the entire sport completely on its head. And that's what happened uh, in the last week. In fact, it happened just after we recorded last week's podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Andrew Hood, and we're going to talk about all of the crazy stories that have happened in the last week and how the landscape of pro cycling has changed because of Mr. Chris Froome, who crashed uh, last Wednesday while doing reconnaissance at the Criterium du Dauphiné, suffered all sorts of terrible injuries, fractures to his neck, his right femur, broken hip, fractured elbow. The guy's off his bike. He's in the hospital. He was in intensive care. He lost, lost blood, hoodie. It was awful. Uh, we're going to talk all about Chris Froome, what this means for cycling. We're going to talk about the Dauphiné, Jakob Fuglesang one. We're going to talk about this crazy story where Juan Jose Cobo, the winner of the 2011 uh, Vuelta, has lost his title potentially. Uh, then the second half of the show, I have a great interview with uh, Chloe Woodruff, an American cross-country mountain biker. She's going to take us through all of the steps involved in uh, the chase for the 2020 Olympics. She's she's trying to get to Tokyo, uh, and the the U.S. women have a really good shot to get a medal there. But before we get to Chloe, hoodie. <laughs> Where, where's your head at today? Chris Froome won't be at the Tour de France. We just learned today at the Tour de Suisse, Garrett Thomas has crashed out. We don't have any information right now on whether he's going to be at the Tour de France. What can you say about the developments in the last week of pro cycling? It has been a wild ride, a wild uh, kind of a news cycle last week there. It was just one thing after another hitting there two or three days in a row. Uh, you got to wonder, you know, is, is that karma coming back to bite Enios after all those good years, just, you know, winning six tours, six out of seven tours with uh, three different riders? You know, is it just luck or is that just what professional cycling is? Where really just a, a turn of a wheel can can turn everything upside down. And you saw Chris Froome doing that crash that from all accounts that we've heard, it was, you know, Many people thought that he might have had way more serious injuries than he did suffer, as bad as it actually is. And then uh, what happened to uh, Garrett Thomas, who crashed today? I mean, that's just what professional road cycling is. It, it, it's just, it's just. Uh, I think Robin Williams once said, "It's like NASCAR racing and wearing pajamas." Yeah, we've seen a lot of really 
dumb comments online about how, oh, this is karma for idios polluting the world's oceans and stuff like that. Uh, I, I don't think that. Uh, but I do think that this speaks to how pro cycling, maintaining dominance in pro cycling is this very fragile thing because so many, um, so many things have to go right with winning the races, but also having your athletes stay healthy. And over the last seven years, we have seen Team Sky slash Ineos have pretty great luck in terms of health. So to have two crashes, marquee riders, Chris Froome suffered just a score of terrible injuries on the eve of the Tour de France. On the eve of him trying to tie the record for with five Tour de France wins speaks to just the fragility of, of pro cycling. So... You know, if you're a listener to the podcast, you've probably read something about what's gone on. I mean, the basics of it were Chris Froome was doing a reconnaissance for the time trial at the Criterium du Dauphiné. He, I believe, as you wrote, he like went to blow his nose. There was a gust of wind. He was on his time trial bike. It blew him off his bike into a wall. He was going like 50 kilometers per hour. And Hoodie, what happens after that? Well, it sounds like that uh, he hit this wall at pretty much a uh, full speed, 50, 50, 55 Ks an hour. Dave Brelsford explained that his uh, power, you know, his odometer later read from 54 miles, kilometers per hour to zero. Uh, that blunt impact, as you know, hitting anything, a stationary object is not, that's the, that's the worst possible scenario for a cyclist. Um, in many ways, it kind of reminded me of, of what happened to Joseba Beloki back with uh, Lance Armstrong back in the 2003 um, Tour de France coming down uh, into Gap off uh, a coal there. His front wheel kind of got caught up in some of this. Uh, it was so hot that day. His front tire wheel got caught up in uh, some of this gunky tar. He high-sided. So I think Beloki's crash was a little bit worse than, than what Froome probably suffered. Uh, but Beloki had some interesting comments this week that, that say Chris Froome will never be the same. Froome uh, was – they were lucky – so lucky, in fact, there's been all these conspiracy theories out there that uh, this is all some sort of charade to take Chris out of the out of the scene for unknown reasons. Uh, but evidently, there was a an ambulance right there in the spot, compound fracture in the right femur. That's the most serious injury. The most serious injury that'll be complicated for him to come back as a rider. So far, the indications are that his injuries are not career threatening. That's what we're getting out of the news out of the hospital and the surgeons from France. He was uh, treated on the spot. Taken to a local hospital, Ron stabilized, airlifted to Saint Antienne, which just by luck, you know, luck cuts both ways. But that Saint Antienne hospital is one of the best hospitals in France for trauma and orthopedic surgeon uh, facilities. So he was lucky it happened there, as opposed to maybe higher up in the Alps or you know maybe out there in the middle of the uh, Massif Central, where he's much much further away from a world class facility. So as the days tick by, we hear that Chris Froome has to undergo surgery. It's like a six-hour surgery to make repairs. Uh, the next day, he puts out a statement that says, okay, you know, he's feeling good. He thanks everyone, thanks family, thanks the fans, thanks his wife, and says, you know, the, the pathway to healing begins now. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about what this means for Chris Froome, his legacy, what it means going forward. I think in the short term, though, the question I have, Hoodie, is what does this mean for Team Ineos at the Tour de France? Look, you know, I think both you and I, Hoodie, wish Chris Froome a speedy recovery. We don't we, – we never want an injury like this to take out a marquee rider. We don't want any of the riders out there to suffer horrible injuries. But we have to talk about how when something like this does happen, it changes the landscape and especially for the landscape for the upcoming races. Right now, we have the Tour de France coming up. So Chris Froome was supposed to be the co-team leader 
with Garrett Thomas. Um, he is not in the race. We don't let, – let's assume that Garrett Thomas is going to race the Tour de France. We saw the crash today. He left the Tour de Suisse, but he was flapping his arms around. He looked pretty upset. I mean he – you know, he looked to be, you know, able to potentially race a bike. So let's assume that Garrett Thomas is going to be there. What does this mean for Team Ineos's overall strategy and just outlook for the Tour de France? Yeah, that is the big question. I mean, no, no one likes to see a rider, especially one, uh, any rider, but especially one as, as important to the Tour as, as really Chris Froome to be out of the race. Um, but it, it, you look at Team Ineos and, and the depth they have. So Froome's absence in some ways changes everything. But then in another way, it almost changes nothing because last year they had a firm that wasn't at 100 percent and they could slot in Garrett Thomas, who had the ride of his life, I think, uh, and to win the tour last year. Um, so I think the way that Ineos will be racing this tour doesn't really change that much. They'll still want to control the race. They'll still be the strongest and probably deepest team in the race, even losing Froome. That means they'll have an extra support rider they can slot in there to help assuming Thomas goes and uh, Bernal, who of course, with remember he crashed out before the Giro even started. So they've had a real rash of bad luck uh, on that team in Eos. Um, but they'll still be the strongest team in the race. They'll still be, I think the favorites to win even with Garrett Thomas. And this course is almost perfect for Bernal with the altitude that you mentioned in the intro highest tour de France in the history. So many climbs. I mean, the more you study this tour route that that last week is just brutal. And you just imagine a scenario where Bernal and the other half dozen Colombians in, in the, in the tour de France Peloton, just drop everybody and ride away. I like your optimism hoodie for Team Ineos, but I'm going to come in with a counter take. And it is my opinion that um, the alarm bells better be going off at Team Ineos. I think they're completely, utterly screwed for the Tour de France. Uh, and and here's why. First of all, Garrett Thomas, uh, he won the Tour de France last year after everything went perfectly. He was so fit at the Dauphiné. He had this great buildup to the Tour. He was fit. He was at his race weight. He had all these great. He had all these great races in the lead up to the tour that gave you that gave you a sense that he was really on form. This year, Garrett Thomas, he DNF Torino. He was like forty fifth place, and you know on Valenciana, he was supposed to do this altitude camp. He got snowed out. You know, I think he was really relying on the Tour de Suisse as. Just you know, an ability—the ability to sharpen the spear right before the race. Now that's taken away from him. He's crashed out stage four. They didn't even get to the mountains. So I don't see Garrett Thomas coming to the Tour de France at the same level he was at last year. Then we have Egan Bernal, and uh, look, Bernal—super talent, extremely talented, great climber. Um, we've never seen him as a team leader at a Grand Tour. He was supposed to do it with Giro, crashed out. He had to take a bunch of time off the bike, get back. I'm, I have no doubt that he's fit, but is he capable of withstanding the psychological pressures of team leadership across a Grand Tour, namely the Tour de France? I, I have no idea. Um, I think that on paper, Team Ineos still has the strongest team. They're still the, the deepest, but without having that ace, without having someone with that confidence to lead a team, I just... Uh, I don't know. I think they are completely, totally screwed. <laughs> actually, for now, I would actually agree with everything you just said. But my only caveat is I think they'll try to race the same way yeah. that they've always raced. It'll be Fortress Froome. Without Froome, they'll try to stick uh, Bernal in there. And I agree with you as well. I think uh, Thomas, everything went perfect for him last year. Uh, you know, 
that's not it's not been a perfect approach for him coming into the Tour de France. Who's to say if he'll be in that shape come July when it counts? It's it's pretty easy to imagine he won't be. Uh, the big question really for me is Bernal. Um, he missed the he missed the Giro. In fact, he hasn't been uh, racing since then. Um, he's um, posted some pretty amazing Strava numbers up in uh, training camps in Andorra. So we'll see what he does if he just blows everybody off the wheel. Uh, going in uh, into these big climbs in the, up, in, the, in the Tour de Suisse, you know, they have a chance. But I agree with you. Without Froome, and Froome was that guarantee, you know, Froome not only had that experience as a leader, he's mentally so strong and physically so strong. I mean, that Chris Froome, whether you like him or not like him, he, he's the strongest guy out there and, and he's a fighter. You've just seen how he fought every year for all these years to, to win all these races, how he would just fight so hard to win the Welta. You know, it took him three or four cracks at the welt, and he finally won it. He went to the Giro last year, and he was on his back foot. He crashed last year. Remember, he crashed uh, in a warm-up before the time trial there. Rode through that pain and rode through, and he was on his back foot in the Giro. He won that Giro. And, uh, you know, with the sky without firms, it would be a completely different team. I totally agree with you. So uh, expanding out from that, all right, if we can uh, agree that – Team Team Sky, Team Ineos, they are they are just screwed. Uh, sorry, Dave Brailsford. This might be one of those years we go for the stage wins. Um, what does this mean for the Tour de France favorites, the GC guys in general? Because you know, because of this year's tour, because Froome was going for number five, and I think everyone expected Team Ineos to just be locked and loaded for the Tour de France. Uh, we saw a number of contenders go to the Giro this year because of the time trial. You know, Nibali went to the Giro. Roglic was at the Giro. Uh, Simon Yates was there. We had a lot of guys who might, who may have been able to really cash in on the absence of a Froome, uh, choose the Giro instead of the Tour de France. That said, we still have a really strong lineup at the Tour de France, including former Grand Tour winners, Valverde, Nibali's going to be there, Nairo Quintana, and Tom, and potentially Tom Dumoulin. We also have a bunch of guys who have to be I mean, they just have to be pinching themselves. Like this is – it's like the the seas have parted and uh, the pathway to winning the Tour de France uh, has all of a sudden become so much clearer for a guy like uh, Thibaut Pinot or Roman Bardet. So, I mean, Hoodie, what does this mean for the GC contenders? Yeah, I think you're right about that in terms of uh, suddenly there, there's the opportunity there. You don't have to beat Chris Froome. You have to win the Tour de France. I think it's going to be an interesting kind of leap – to take in terms of just taking on the on the race psychologically because i think up to now really we've seen riders year after year just follow chris Froome's wheel and if you could stay on close enough to Froome's wheel you'd end up dropping almost everybody else and you'd end up on the podium but you haven't really seen too many riders really just take it and try to uh, uh win the tour de france outright i mean they've tried of course but with the dominance of of uh, what, what Sky and Enos have been racing over the years, suddenly that changes the scenario. You know, who's going to have that kind of racing panache to exploit this opening? You know, the guy looking at it on paper would be Nibali. He did that in 2014. That's how he won that uh, tour that Froome crashed out of. But, you know, Nibali, he raced the Giro. He went pretty hard in that Giro to try to beat Carapath. Um, you know, he was coming into, he's coming, you know, coming out of the Jira saying he was coming into the tour just to look for uh, stage wins. You know, that'll obviously change his approach to this tour. But, uh, you know, it's right there sitting for guys like Nairo, guys like Dumoulin, Richie Port, all these guys that have been kind of the bridesmaids now have their chance. It's going to be interesting to see who really steps up. Yeah, I think we could al- almost see uh, a potential for a changing of the guard. You know, you see this every now and again in pro cycling where 
the there's a generational shift and an era of dominance comes to an end. And, you know, look, Armstrong, his era of dominance came to an end. And then there were a couple years of shakeup where like Carlos Sastre is winning and Floyd Landis is taking the yellow jersey before losing it. And I, I almost wonder if we could see a Tour de France of that nature where, you know, maybe it's not even one of these veteran guys. Maybe it's someone new. Maybe it's someone shiny like an Enrique Mas or a Bernal or some young rider who um, people think is maybe a little too young to win the Tour de France. But just they're they're fit and people aren't taking them seriously and they win. I, I wonder about Roglic, man. I mean, was I guess we did learn from the Giro that Roglic just doesn't yet have those climbing legs to be able to go deep into a third week. But um, you know, could this have been a, a Tour de France for him? Um, yeah, you know, I think we're going to. I hope that we're going to remember the 2019 Tour de France as just a wide open race that had a lot of twists and turns because, as someone who's followed the race for a long time, I, I just feel like the elements are there right now for potentially a really wide open and fun uh fun to watch race. Uh moving on to Froome's legacy. Um Chris Froome crashes and injures himself as he's preparing for this go at history. We wrote about this in the Tour de France guide which, you know, sorry, stupid thing happened after we published the Tour de France guide. We'll amend Still it worth online. Buying. Still worth buying. Still worth buying, people. Go buy it. Read all about Andy Hood's experience at the 2009 Tour de France. Um, but, you know, Froome was chasing history. He's won four Tours de France. He's won all these Grand Tours. He w- This was the year that he was going to uh, potentially join Eddie Merckx, Bernardino, Jacques Anquetil. Uh, who else is in there? In Duran is a five-time winner. All of a sudden, that's taken away from him. All of a sudden, he's looking at the very real – Potential that uh, he's going to lose six months to a year. I mean, next year he'll be 35 trying to win the Tour de France. Um, what do we think this crash does for Froome's future, but also just his place within the history books? Yeah, I think the, the future is, is probably the bigger question facing Chris right now. I don't think he's probably too worried about his legacy laying in intensive care bed right now in some hospital in Saint-Antienne. But, uh, you know, is his racing future, that is really the big question because you're right. Um, the oldest rider uh, to win the Tour de France is 34 years old. That was Cadell Evans in the modern era, at least. Uh, Cadell Evans in 2011 won at 34. And uh, he was one of those kind of transition year riders as well, kind of coming out of that – uh, out of that Armstrong kind of era and then going into the Team Sky, uh, he he kind of won that one of those one-off tours. And uh, you're, you know, wonder, you know, can Chris, Chris Froome come back at 35 next year to be in condition to, to win the Tour de France again? You know, that's a huge question right, mark right now. And if he's not, you know, one more year, 36, I mean, no one's won, 36-year-old won a Tour de France ever. And uh, it's a big ask. I mean, uh, some couple of good interviews with uh, Baloki that crashed that was probably most similar to Froome's of uh, the recent pros. And he said his life forever changed after his crash. And he was saying that it's going to be a life-changing experience for Froome, even though, you know, uh, the medicine, treatment, rehab, all that kind of stuff has improved even dramatically, even from when it happened to Baloki more than 10 years ago. So we'll see that, that, that part of that equation is completely up in the air in terms of his legacy. I mean, his legacy, I think is going to be, uh, you know, he won't be judged last by winning one less tour de France. Um, he's won six grand tours and maybe one more with this whole Kobo thing, a uh, little asterisk there on that one. But, uh, you know, Froome has emerged as the best grand tour rider of his generation. And, but you're right. He would be stuck at four. The only guy who won four who did not win five. 
Yeah, uh, a couple things there. You know, regarding the medical stuff and his ability to come back, um, I want to send a personal thank you to all of the um, medical professionals and people who have uh, undergone hip surgery out there who took the time to email me this past week <laughs> to say that uh, both Chris Froome will never be at the same level he's at now and to email to tell me that Chris Rue will be fine and he will be able to mount a rousing comeback. Uh, I want to let all of you know that for as many of you told me who wrote me to say that um, Chris Froome, his career is over, he'll never do anything again in the sport. There was an equal number of people saying that uh, he's going to be fine. So uh, we can officially say the jury or the doctor is still out on that one. Um, regarding the legacy, yeah, I mean, I think about Chris Froome and, you know, he has these four tour wins. He crashes out of 2014, which he had a very good chance to win that race. You think about the 2012 Tour de France, Bradley Wiggins won that race. But, you know, Chris Froome was probably the strongest guy, but he was riding as a domestique. And then we think about 2018, where he very famously went to win the Giro d'Italia and then was just flat at the tour and, and couldn't do it. And... um you know, look, no shots fired at Chris Froome. He's won six, maybe seven Grand Tours, depending on the Cobo thing. Greatest Grand Tour rider of this generation. Um, but, you know, within the history books of the Tour de France, you know, I think there may be a debate that goes down in history. Let's say he did, let's say he has, he's stuck at four. There could be a debate that goes down in history of, like, Chris Froome was the guy who could have had six. Um, and he had four. And... That's that's just the way it was. You know, he wanted to race the Giro and he crashed out and, you know, had to work for Bradley Wiggins. And in, in aggregate, I put that as one tour. Um, so he was he was strong enough, a smart enough racer to do to to potentially break the history books. But just it didn't work out. The crash happened. I think I think there's a really good chance, Hoodie, that we go down that this crash that we're talking about goes down in history as sort of a seminal moment in um in pro cycling history up there with like Eddie Merckx getting punched during the 1975 Tour de France, which he famously was trying to go for a number six win and did not. Um, I think this crash could be looked at that. This was the, you know, the very tragic um, start of the end of Chris Froome's career. And look, again, Chris Froome, amazing racer. What he has accomplished has been completely stunning and groundbreaking. He's all, one of the all-time greats. But in terms of getting that fifth Tour de France victory, um, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm just going to say that now. Uh, at 35, I think that's going to be a little too too late to get back. So I, Chris Froome crashes out of the Dauphiné, which then leads to some wacky and wild racing where uh, Adam Yates is in the lead and looking good. And then all of a sudden, there's a rainy penultimate stage. It's mountain, you know, mountainous there in the Alps. Um, and Yates cannot follow the wheel of uh, Emmanuel Buchmann and then Jakob Fugelsang, who attacks up to Buchmann. They get a small gap going up this final climb to the summit finish. Uh, while Pohl somehow attacks out of the group of Yates, catches those two and goes on for the win. But uh, the gap that Fugelsang had was enough to put him in the yellow jersey, and he wins his second Dauphiné overall. And that got me thinking a lot about old Jakob Fugelsang. You know, every year... We include him on the top 10, list of top 10 favorites, but like pretty far down. He's usually like number eight, number nine. Uh, he's like the guy who's really good, who can time trial, who can climb. But you just, you would never, pen, like never even pencil him in for the podium. 
Um, my question for you, Hoodie, is why is that? What is it about oh poor Jakob Fuglesang? He wins races like the Dauphiné. He can he's a good stage racer, but it just seems like at the grant like we don't lump him into the same you know elite category as Tom Dumoulin, Chris Froome, or Garrett Thomas. Why is that? Well, if, I think to be uh, talked in that company, you have to be in that company, and he never really has been, has he? I mean, I think his best Grand Tour result at the Tour was seventh, I think maybe 2013 or at least a few years ago. He's uh, he's always been uh, hyped up. I mean, the, the Danes just love Fuguesong. But I, I talked to Jacob last year at the Tour and just kind of asked him, you know, how he was doing. And he, he was had he just said, look, I have the best power numbers of my life last year. And he goes, I'm getting dropped by these guys. He said he just doesn't have the motor to go into that third week in those long mountains and those long four or five climb stages. He just doesn't have the motor to do it. But having said that, you know, this could be his year though. We have to, we have to acknowledge that right now because who has been the best stage race rider so far this season? I mean, without, without a doubt, consistently going in, I mean, just like you, how you spelled out earlier with Garrett Thomas, how everything just went perfect for him last year. You know, that's what, the season that Fuglesang has had this year. I mean, he won Liège. He's won some big races early in the season. He was second and third in some of these other races he started. And to do what he's done, he's clearly at a very, very, very good level. And he could be kind of that smoky guy that comes into the tour. Everyone kind of does, you know, he'll never win. And if he's just there, there, and there, he could be the guy that could like kind of pull that surprise win off. Having said that, I don't think it'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think that uh, it's it's to- it's, it's uh, very possible in this kind of wide open tour now that we had the scenario we're facing. Yeah, some uh, Danish reader posted on our social media. He's like, ah, in Denmark, you would have us believe he's already won the tour based off of the media coverage he's getting. Uh, I think the Danish media love Jakob, our good friend uh, Lars, who tweets at us a lot. I know he's a big Fuglesang fan. Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, he just he. He, he always has Jakob Fuglesang always has the one bad day. He's all, you know he's up there, he's up there, he's up there, and then it's like oh stage whatever. Usually it's some innocuous looking and lumpy stage, and he just you know doesn't have it or he crashes. 2017 F3 won the Dauphiné, looking great, and he crashed, fractured his arm, and and that was it for him. Um, I think the other thing that stands in Fuglesang's favor is Astana. I mean Astana is flying this year. They are crushing people, and um, you know we saw Astana on that final stage of the Dauphiné. I mean they just snuffed the whole thing out. Um, there were a couple of attacks by Thibaut Pino, but otherwise it was like pfft, they were they were putting the pedal to the metal. And so I could see a scenario in which you know Fuglesang's up there and Astana are able to. Um, do the Ineos thing and, and control it, but uh, yeah, I'm with you. You know, week three, I, I just don't know if Jakob Fuglesang has the watch. What about the Frenchies? What about uh, Thibaut Pino, <laughs> Romain Bardet? Is this a could the French losing streak finally come to an end, Hoodie? <laughs> oh man, if that happened, uh, that would be that would be absolutely huge. Uh, you know, it, it could possibly happen. I mean, both uh, Bardet. He actually came out of uh, the Dauphiné, said he felt a little sick, and he raced that Mont Ventoux race on Monday, uh, lost to on, on the famous climb there. He was uh, he's clearly said he came out of the Dauphiné not feeling great. You know, Pinot, I think Pinot was one of those kind of scrappy guys who could maybe pull off the surprise. It could be the French, you know? I mean, anything could happen this year in this tour, and that's what's going to make it you know, at least interesting, right? We don't know how it's going to end. I mean, that's everyone was always complaining about Chris Froome and Team Sky. Everyone's like, well, we know how it's going to end. It's the tour is so boring. For me, the tour is never boring. 
I always think the tour, even when it is, seems boring, it never really truly is because everyone's at 100% and everyone's just fighting and scrapping for every inch of the road from day one to day 21 going into Paris. But could it be a French year? I mean, there's, there's a long list of other contenders. I mean, what do you think about Iran? I mean, last year, you know, he was, he's, he's the guy that's been closest to Chris Froome to beating Chris Froome ever in the four ones that he, four tours he won. Had that crash last year, do you think, uh, you think Iran could do it? I, yeah, I mean, he has as good a shot of, uh, as anyone. I mean, I, although I do remember in that 2017 tour, it did feel like everyone was racing for second place. Um, and that was just – that was another year where I felt like the list of contenders kind of fell off a cliff. But yeah, I mean, Iran, he's a great racer. He's confident. He's been there. He's, he's a cagey veteran. Um, I think – I think the question mark there could be the EF team and whether they have the horsepower to, you know, have support for him in some of these final climbs. If TJ Van Garderen is is good enough, and look, TJ second overall to Dauphiné, so he's coming into form at a good time. So, yeah, maybe we have a pink podium, guys in pink on the podium. <laughs> I, I, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Well, what about you know the, the list is long, even you know Mikael Landa, Richie Port. A lot of guys can, you know, Stephen Kweiswick, a lot of guys are coming to come into, into Brussels this year dreaming big, Fred. Uh, I will not be in Brussels dreaming big. Hoodie, you will be in Br- Brussels dreaming big. And, you know, like you said, the Tour de France is never boring. And it's never boring for you because you're too busy uh, saddling up to the old Buffalo Grill and getting yelled at by gendarmes in the parking lot and, uh, you know, getting, getting screamed at by press officers because uh, you weren't supposed to do the interview at that point. And, and, and the other joys of covering the Tour de France. Oh, we'd love the tour. We love the tour. It's it's a love hate relationship. It's like, uh, you know, it always it always brings you back. It always brings you back. Well, we'll miss you, Fred. <laughs> um, before we get out of here, hoodie, we need to talk about the other, you know, just just a bombshell story that went on this past week, which was the story involving Juan Jose Cobo and the 2011 Vuelta España. Um, I believe this was the day after the Froome crash. We saw news circulate that the UCI had decided to – the UCI was announcing that there were biological passport violations against rider Juan Jose Cobo. Cobo retired several years ago, but Cobo was the winner of the 2011 Vuelta España. And the biopassport violations were between the years 2009 and 2011, I believe. Now, there was not an announced sanction, but the news itself – points at Kobo potentially losing his Welta title, which would give the title to uh, none other than Chris Froome, who was second that year working for Bradley Wiggins. Um, and, you know, so we we have the very real reality that Chris Froome could be for the first man ever to win a Grand Tour from a hospital bed, which is a very, very bizarre situation. So this whole thing is completely bonkers and speaks to the old era of cycling where, you know, the results, the, the history books were being written and results were being erased. And none of us like that era of cycling. But I think that you both you and I have uh, some perspective on this, that potentially this isn't a bad thing. Um, first of all, Odi, what do you remember from that 2011 Vuelta a España? Were you there? Were you standing on the side of the Anglerou yelling at Juan Jose Cobo to stop pedaling, <laughs> pedaling up it like he was on a motorcycle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I was there. In fact, I remember that stage to Peña Cabarga. Uh, I think some people were putting some of those video clips up on Twitter where it was these like kind of short, steep, just brutally steep uh, Vuelta climbs. I think it's like five or six Ks, you know, like freaking 18%. Uh, and then Kobo was just steamrolling everybody. 
and Froome was trying to throw it out. And, you know, I think the difference in that race was 13 seconds. And that was really the last chance to really try to do anything. And uh, we were actually inside the Team Sky bus. The only time I was ever in the Team Sky bus, early days with the team before they really got big and uh, powerful. Because uh, a lot of times you go down when the when the race finishes on a mountain, all the team buses are parked for, you know, down in the valley. So a lot of times we'll go around and just ask some of the team buses, like, hey, do you guys have a TV so we can watch the watch the stage? And we were in, inside the team bus uh, at Team Sky. And, you know, this was only their second year. So they were all jazzed up. You know, Fermi was there almost winning the race. You know, Wiggins ended up third that year. He won the tour the next year. So the team was really kind of starting to get into gear with its uh, grand tour kind of ambitions. And uh, but, yeah, it was just surreal for everyone because uh, Kobo was a guy, you know, no one really, uh, you know, that was one of those one off winners like going, oh, man, I don't know about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Kobo was for me, Kobo before that was the most famous as I believe it was the 2008 Tour de France, which was the um, that was the Ricardo Rico Tour de France (laughs) when uh, Sonia Duval was real fast and Rico won a couple of stages. They were taken away after he tested positive. But I believe it was the stage of the Hotacom when two teammates, Kobo and Leonardo Pipoli, broke, yeah, yeah. broke away, uh, dropped the entire field uh, on Hotacom and finished one, two at the summit, like breathing out of their noses and high fiving. And I think Kobo was like waggling his tongue at people. I mean, it was, you could laugh about it now because it was such a, like a blatant display of like uh, bad, bad dopers just killing people on the bike. So uh, fast forward to 2011. And I, you know, to me, the stage, the stage that won it all was, uh, was the Angleroo. And Wiggins, like you said, this was the Team Sky dress rehearsal for the Tour de France. Could we win the Vuelta for Wiggins and then go to the Tour? And Wiggins was dominant in the time trial. He looked really strong throughout the race. And I believe he had the red leader's jersey on. And then it came to Angleroo. And look, you know, whenever there's an Angleroo in the Vuelta, it's sort of all bets are off. Any kind of crazy stuff can happen. But yeah, that year the crazy stuff was uh, Wiggins and Froome are climbing together. And then all of a sudden, Kobo just... Kicks it into, looked like he was on an e-bike and uh, kicks it into another gear and doesn't so much attack. He just rides away, you know, seated in the saddle and just pedals away from everyone. And uh, Wiggins and Froome are having to ride their own pace and trying to take him down. And at some point, I think Wiggins just started pedaling squares (laughs) and Kobo just kept going and he took the win. And yeah, you know, when you, you look at that Welta win, through the wider perspective of Kobo's overall victories, it's it's one of those things that really stood out. So, how did they get him? You know, how did this how did this go down, Odie? It sounds like this this was an investigation that's been going on for several years. Yeah, evidently there were some there were some red flags in his biological passport dating back to two well, really almost those years, 2012, 13, 14, after he'd won that Welta. But the red flags were obviously in that period, but then the investigation happened in a couple of years after that. And evidently there was some, there was some contact with uh, with Kobo, but evidently the UCI and WADA just didn't quite have enough to get him, just basically based on the biological passport data. You know, we've seen a few cases that were challenged during that period as well. Uh, we saw the the UCI and WADA win a few of those cases, and we saw a few cases that they lost. So I think that. In this case, the UCI wanted to wait to see if they could get him. Uh, and probably there's some other cases probably out there that are very similar to this. We might see a few more of these pop over the years because 
under the rules, you can keep these samples for 10 years. There's an eight-year statute of limitation for the doping sanction, but they can retest them. Evidently, there was a new testing method, and this is still unofficial. This has been coming out in some of the uh, the Madrid dailies that there's uh, they, they evidently got him most likely on a banned substance, most likely EPO. Uh, there was also some Sara being used on that uh, earlier in the senior years. That's what people got popped for. But um, evidently, it is a banned substance, not a biological passport, so it would be a sanction and a disqualification of the Wilton. Yeah, and you know, when you look at it through that lens, um, look, my initial my initial take around this whole thing was, ah, oh, this is bad for cycling. This is terrible. You know, we're back in this era. You know, I think we all we all remember the 2006 to 2011, 12 era when just the history books were constantly being rewritten. Uh, people were testing positive. Contador, you know, the Clint Buterol, he goes and wins races. You know that he's going to lose the title. I mean, it was just like it was kind of a mockery. And so when I saw this happen. Um, that was my first knee-jerk reaction was, God, they're making a mockery of this thing again. They're going back and erasing a result from literally almost 10 years ago. I mean, that's ridiculous. But then the more and more I started to think about it and read about it and read some of the stuff that came out, it was like, well, you know, better late than never. I mean, maybe this is this is something that has to happen in order for the sport to move past that era. And – you know, you you talk to hardcore fans of cycling, and, and, and not to and not to fall back into it, yeah, or 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 stay in it, yeah. And you talk to hardcore fans of cycling from that era, and like everyone kind of arches an eyebrow at the 2011 Vuelta. Everyone kind of, you know, people chuckle at it. Oh yeah, Kobo, uh, that's when he was on an e-bike on the Angler route, you know. But um, but to be able to go back and do something about it, I, I do think it at the very least shows that Wada and the UCI have a commitment to try and to try and make things right if, if there's the opportunity to do so. Yeah. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, criticism against WADA, this, you know, against the UCI saying that, you know, would this have happened to uh, a well-funded team like Sky? And of course, we saw the case last year with, with uh, Sal Budimal, with Chris Froome. You know, he got off, you know, between quotes, he got off. But uh, you know, it kind of just reveals how kind of uh, murky sometimes this this fight against doping is because, you know, Froome's case was obviously very, very different. Don't want to go jump into that rabbit hole right now. But because Sky could actually challenge that, they ended up having to rewrite their rules on Salbutamol. So you could argue that, you know, some of these other guys that got popped for Salbutamol before might, not to say that they weren't taking Salbutamol, but that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a two-way battle. So in this case, you know, if, if, if they can prove it and show it, but of course the problem there is uh, Kobo, I guess he's a surf instructor now, delivers milk. He's not going to, he's not going to put up a fight uh, and maybe he shouldn't. Uh, we also saw Pantano last week, the Colombian rider say, oh, it's going to cost me too much money to fight, but I'm innocent. I have no idea how Epo got into my body, <laughs> which the only way to get it into your body is through injection. But it's, uh, it's, it's a it's a battle that uh, cycling I think will just have to fight you know on both sides of that good and bad side of that of that debate you know eternally because cycling and sport in general is is 
inherent people are going to just try to get by legally or illegally. They're going to try to do anything they can to win the race. Wait, wait, hoodie, hoodie. Wait, 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 wait. Are we going to have to record this entire podcast over again and make this podcast about the fact that Juan Jose Cobo is a surf instructor? <laughs> we buried the lead. That's the most amazing thing about this entire, the entire last week isn't Chris Froome crashing. It isn't Juan Jose Cobo's welter title being taken away. It's that a Grand Tour winner is now just a surf instructor, man. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> Evidently, he's much happier for it as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet. Oh, God, racing and training in the high mountains to go race up to Anglaroo and do all this stuff. That's yeah, no fun. I'm going to go be a, be a surf instructor. Gosh, that's what I want to do. Yeah, hoodie. <laughs> let's stop this podcast, this, this journalism racket. Let's go be surf instructors with one crazy one, crazy JJ's uh, surf shack. <laughs> There's some good beaches up there where he lives in Cantabria. I think I got some great surf beaches up there in northern Spain. Yeah. Well, that was, uh, boy, a lot went on in the last week. Um, we are midway through the Tour de Suisse. So when we link up a week from now, Hoodie, we're going to be breaking down everything that went hap- that happened at the Tour de Suisse. We're going to know more about Garen Thomas. So we'll probably have some more perspective to shed on what this means for Team Sky Ineos. And we're just going to have a lot of forward-looking takes on the Tour de France. So, uh, Andrew Hood, I thank you, as always, for sharing your takes and your perspective with us on all this stuff. Uh, before we get out of here, guys, let's go hear from Chloe Woodruff about the chase for the 2020 Olympics in the sport of mountain biking and why Team USA is in a really good position with its female riders. We'll see you next week. Okay, right now I am very happy to be joined by our guest this week. Uh, Chloe Woodruff is a member of the Stands Pivot Pro Mountain Bike Team and also one of the the, the brightest lights in American cross-country mountain bike (laughs) racing. Uh, Chloe, you were a member of the 2016 Olympic Mountain Bike Team. And here we are, it's 2019, we have the uh, Tokyo Olympics on the horizon, and 2019 is going to be a very important year for you, Chloe, and your compatriots as you start this chase for the Olympics. So, Chloe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You know, Chloe, I was hoping you could start out by talking to us about why 2019 is important in this chase for the 2020 Olympics. There are um, points up for grabs that help determine how many spots the U.S. has for the 2020 Olympics. That much I know. Uh, Drilling down into that, it gets a little arcane, gets a little technical. So I I was hoping you could talk us through 2019 specifically and how it relates to the Olympic chase. Yeah. Well, um, actually for um, team qualification, which is um, kind of qualifying the maximum number of spots for the U.S. uh, mountain bike team, which is three, potentially three for the women. Um, that process actually started in June of 2018. Oh, wow. So 2018 was also a really important year um, for the national team for qualifying Olympic starting positions. Um, so this has kind of been a, a push and a, um, and I would say the team has been pretty strategic. And um, one of the the more motivating things coming into this year was how um, kind of on the same page the entire 
U.S. team was last year and in, in uh, working together towards this. And um, yeah, so it's actually it's a two year cycle. So it started, I believe, May 28th, 2018. Um, and that started the first 12 month cycle, um, which we just finished up. And um, and then there's a second 12 month cycle. And so basically the points you accrue through this cycle for top finishes on the World Cup, or is it other international races too, count towards the nation ranking, which then the top few teams get that maximum number of three spots, correct? So it's the the total UCI points that the top three ranked riders from each uh, country mm-hmm. have. So in the first cycle, it was um, Kate, Courtney, Aaron, Huck, and myself. Um, so our points were all tallied together in addition to team relay points from the World Championships and Pan American Championships. Um, and so that's our number for essentially round one of qualification. Um, and we're in the midst now of, uh, you know, of kind of chasing points for round two. Um, it's, it is really challenging. Um, you really have to weigh uh, you know, kind of your individual goals and against that as well. Um, I will say even, you know, even going into the 2016 Rio Olympics, going into that year, my number one goal was to finish that, um, that cycle being one of the riders whose points counted towards earning that second, um, Olympic starting spot. So I've kind of always been motivated by this idea of, you know, we can be stronger as a team if we maximize the number of spots we, we qualify. Um, and since Rio, we can now qualify a third spot, which is huge. That has been so motivating, I think, for the U.S. women. Um, I think you've seen that in our performances. You've seen that in how we've, in support from the national team, um, how we've branched out and done some different styles of racing. I've done my first UCI stage races in the last year. Um, and it's been a really fun process to be a part of. So I think in the end, no matter what the outcome is, um, I think we've all kind of benefited and have grown from it. I think one of the interesting dynamics here is that as a North American rider, you all have, you know, your sponsors back home and you have racing targets back home. A lot of times it's the Epic Rides or some of these races in North America that generate a lot of, you know, audience and get a lot of attention. But in these Olympic cycles, it really does focus you, you know, focus you on some of these international races. Like you said, you're doing stage races, you're doing World Cups. And what can you say about the tension and the push and pull in that? How do you manage these situations where, okay, maybe the races back home have a lot of attention and media attention, but it really is these international races that count towards the Olympics. How do you manage that? You know, I think it comes to just kind of prioritizing and um, being smart about what you can and cannot do. I mean, we like my team, the Stance Pivot Pro team, I actually own and manage the team, which is kind of unique. Um, So I've kind of always the last few years, I've really become, um, better at like looking at schedules and kind of managing those types of demands between sponsors, individuals. Um, I have a huge amount of kind of flexibility and I am really grateful for the autonomy that I have when it comes to my own schedule. Um, and I also, you know, the riders on the team, Rose and Sophia and Keegan, you know, they also are able to kind of, um, you know, prioritize their own, you know, with their own individual goals in mind, Um, you know, for Sophia and Keegan, that's very much Olympic driven, Um, you know, and Rose, it's pursuing some of the the longer, more endurance style races. And um, so, 
you know, at the end of the day, my job, I feel like is to kind of communicate that back to sponsors. And I don't feel like it's, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's still part of the process and motivating. It's challenging at times. Um, but as a team, we definitely, we show up, we do the off road series races. We perform at those races. We love them. We have a great time. They're great for training. Um, you know, they're great for learning how to race and they're great for confidence. So they, all of these different events kind of serve their purpose. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm very fortunate. I don't think of it as being like this fight between sponsors and national team. I think for the most part, um, like our program has been successful because I've been very clear with everyone we work with up front about, you know, what is motivating me to perform at the highest, you know, to race and train hard. And that really has to do with world cup performances. Um, but also we still value a lot of our domestic races that generate a lot of publicity and excitement from fans and, and that type of thing. So getting back to this chase to get the maximum number of spots for the Olympics, where does the U S women sit uh, right now in this uh, nation ranking? And, and what do you have to do looking forward to try and secure these three spots? Um, I think the main thing is to right now, uh, we did a phenomenal job last year as a team. Like it, we're currently after that first cycle ranked the second nation in the world, um, behind Switzerland. Um, and that gap to Switzerland has kind of continued to close through that 12 month period. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, Kate's performance at world championships, I mean, her, you know, dominating the first couple world cups this year, those were huge, um, kind of factors. Um, in addition, you know, Aaron Huck had, has ha had probably won more UCI races than just about anyone else in the last, in that 12 month period. So, you know, she continued to perform at race after race after race. Um, we did a trip together last fall to, um, to Greece to do a couple of UCI stage races. All three of us went to the Pan Am championships this year, which is not an easy event to squeeze into a busy spring race schedule. Um, so everybody was committed. We performed well. Um, but at the same time, it was not a perfect 12 month period. I had, um, Last summer, I, I had an injury before the Mont Saint Anne World Cup. I couldn't compete there. I actually suffered from a concussion in a training crash days before the World Championships and had to sideline myself from that. I had plans to do the Swiss Epic and I couldn't do that. And so those were major points opportunities that I was physically unable to do last year. Erin um, Huck broke her hand right at the start of the cycle. Um, she had surgery. She had to sit out some world cups last year that we're counting. Um, so kind of with all of these hurdles and setbacks, not to mention how much more difficult it is for riders based in North America to simply have points to find races, to earn points. Um, man, I mean, it's, it's pretty awesome. Like it was really neat to just end the cycle as we did. Um, you know, with that in mind, the next 12 months is going to be really challenging. Um, you know, Erin, actually, she broke her foot in, at Alpstadt this year and a sideline for quite a while. Um, you know, and I've, I've kind of had my own struggles with kind of 
managing stress and kind of even burnout actually this spring. And I've had to step back from quite a few races that I had on my, my schedule. Um, that included a stage race in May, um, in Utah, which was kind of a a disappointing thing to sit out, but it was the right call to me for me to make. I'm actually skipping, you know, the world cups in early July, the next world cups. And that was a decision I made this spring. Um, it's a decision I'm sticking with, even though I am ranked third in the world cup right now. Um, and that's just to try to be, to make sure I can perform at my best at the races that count the most, which will be, you know, world championships. So, um, it's going to be a challenge in the next 12 months, but, uh, I do believe we're up for it. Leah's been, you know, she's performed really well at the last, you know, at the last World Cups. And um, so, you know, I think the U.S. women are up for the challenge. Now, after this cycle, this first cycle where you are trying to get those maximum three spots for the Olympics, then there is the discussion around who gets the spots. And I know that there is a set of criteria that USA Cycling has distributed that uh, details the ways in which individuals can get those spots. So I, take take us through that. What are the ways that someone like you can get on the Olympic team for 2020? Um, and, and which are the, well, I wouldn't say easiest, but like there's no easy ways to get on this team. It seems like it's just orders of magnitude of more difficult. But let, let's let's discuss the criteria. Yeah, um, it's actually, it is a pretty, I think, complicated criteria. But if you really look at, boil it down to what races are the most important, there are two. It is the World Championships this year, which is in Mont St. Anne, Canada. Um, you know, and anything from a top 10 performance there is going to be at least get you close to an automatic. Um, although that automatic tier, you can be bumped from that automatic by someone else who might surpass you at the Nova Nesta World Cup in 2020. So those are the two events. Um, World Championships this year and the first World Cup next year in Czech Republic. Those are going to be the most important races. And, um, you know, anything from a top 10 to a podium to a straight up win is going to be what you know, is going to be really the the key automatic criteria for the Olympic team. How would you describe those? What's your opinion on them? I know that um, in years past, we've had criteria that included much, you know, m- much more races. And this one, it's just two races and it's really prioritizing them. Um, how does that change the dynamic? And, and just what are your overall thoughts on this plan? I like it. So I know there's been a little bit of discussion about it. Um, I think you know, I think it's important to be able to show that you can, you know, you can train and peak and really be able to be at your best on a given day. Um, you know, and I think when the criteria is set up to kind of give you that opportunity to, you know, to put yourself through that process, I think that's great because that criteria ultimately is helping you prepare for the Olympic games. Um, you know, and, May, the the first World Cup next year is late May. It's in May 2020. And, um, you know, that gives plenty of time to to build, to peak and then to recover, to build again and peak for the Olympics. So I think it's spaced appropriately. Um, I think the courses are such that they are not too selective in terms of um, maybe benefiting one type of rider. They're they're technical. Um you know, I, I don't think anyone's disappointed that those are the courses that count the most. So, you know, and at the end of the day, there are there's still a window for um, there could be 
a discretionary criteria, which is like a coach's selection. Um, but I do believe that the U.S. women will will qualify automatically through the criteria set forth. Now, Chloe, before we let you go, uh, we have to talk about this big win you recently had, and that was at the Nova Mesta World Cup, where they have, you know, this the, the last two seasons, they, the Cross Country World Cup has also had short track, which we yeah. Americans love because we've had short track at the Norbas and NNBSs and Pro XCTs for a really long time, and you were able to win the short track at Nova yeah. Mesta. So tell us the story of your big win at the short track. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just really glad it all came together because, you know, I feel very fortunate that all these little things that contributed to the ride that I had that day, um, it's just kind of a little miracle that everything fell into place. Um, I, and also just that, you know, it was live and, you know, so many people got back home, got to watch it, um, as it was happening. Um, so just huge thank you to everyone that sent messages and um, we're just so fired up by, by that race. Um, I think, uh, you know, actually maybe what most people don't know is the weekend before in Albstadt, I finished, I think I was like seventh or eighth at the short track and I was incredibly frustrated after that race. Um, I, I felt great. I, you know, I was racing pretty smart through that entire short track and with, about a lap and a half to go, I was in the, the lead group and I saw this opening where I, I just, I just knew that was the move to make. I should attack right now, race aggressively. Like I could win this thing. And, and I hesitated. And at the end of that race, and I hesitated in part because my mindset coming into that day was I'm here to race for a front row call up, be smart, secure your top eight. You've done your job for the next day you know, for the big race on Sunday. And at the end of that race, I was so mad at myself because that was the first time I had been in that lead group. I felt good. And I also saw how I could win that race and I didn't go for it. So, um, kind of having that frustration from the weekend before I just, you know, and I had a great short track from, um, at Czech Republic the year before, like it's in the Czech Republic short track is a very tactical, kind of race. And I feel like that's one of my strengths. So I just felt like if there's any race where I could kind of pull some sort of tactical crazy move, like this would be it. Um, so I definitely had a plan coming into it and, um, I just had, yeah, I just kind of had the right people around to kind of like, you know, kind of help motivate me and build my confidence up. And, um, I had, you know, the best equipment on the day, the best tire selection, um, pivot had just released the, um, their new cross country bike, the Mach 4 SL. Um, so there was kind of also that component of it. Like, you know, I just felt like I had nothing to lose by going out there and, and taking a flyer and, and racing aggressively, um, with, you know, you know, not being afraid to lose a front row call up if that's what it would take. So well, it was exciting to watch. I was one of those people watching back home. Uh, thank, thankfully, awesome. we have this uh, Red Bull um, sponsorship, which now broadcasts all this stuff on live yeah. webcast, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, Chloe, you had the big solo win, stretched it uh, on. It was it was sort of the three quarters point when you know I thought it was either they were going to have to really do something to bring you back, and they didn't. And at that point, it was like I think I think Chloe's going <laughs> to win this race. Yeah, it was crazy. I, it was definitely earlier than I was comfortable going. Like I'm pretty comfortable 
like a lap, lap and a half in short track with like those shorter efforts. I think, I think after looking at it, it was like seven or eight minutes I was off so low and that's a long time. And I, uh, yeah, but I went early because, you know, like positioning was really tricky in the lap before I'd kind of gotten boxed in. And at that point I was like, you know what? Don't lose your opportunity because you waited too long. So if you've got an opening, go for it. So, so I did. <laughs> well, Chloe, I really appreciate you talking to us today. And for the listeners, the American chase for the 2020 Olympics has already started and you can follow riders like Chloe Woodruff and Kate Courtney, Leah Davison and others as they chase for the Olympics. So thank you, Chloe, and best of luck to you. Thank you, friend.